Just a quick note about the episode that you're just about to listen to. Uh, it's called Financing Deals Using Angel Investors and Joint Venture Finance. This was recorded a little while ago with the expat property guy, aka John, uh, who's based over in, in Asia. Uh, we had a really good and in-depth conversation and we went into a couple of examples of how uh, we funded deals using angel investors, uh, whether we've just used you know, what different agreements we've used, what paperwork we've had to do, or, you know, all sorts of bits and pieces like that. Uh, so, yeah, sit back, enjoy, and uh, learn about how to, in principle, uh, fund deals using angel investors and uh, joint venture finance. So property investors usually run out of their own money at some stage, and then they look for private finance. And that's something that I believe that you've done, Rob. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, John, no problem at all. So that's very true what you just said, that most people will run out of their own cash, or some people might not have a, a lot of cash to start off with. They actually might just go straight into uh, using you know, angel finance, investor finance as such. And we yeah we done that we that's what we started doing. Um, really, just a case of speaking to people that you know that you that you trust, and uh, mentioning what you do or what you're trying to do. Uh, that you you know either getting started or you know this is my this is our portfolio and you know this is a vision all that sort of all that sort of stuff. And and really, people will you know ultimately people will work with you because they they want to work with you. Um, yeah, people people will work with you if they like you. At the end of the day, and you know that yes, there does have to be a degree of financial literacy there. You know, do the numbers stack up? What's the deal like, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it has to be an element of that, of course, as well. But uh, yeah, most people will, you know, either they'll have a big stack of cash and they'll use that first, and then they'll start speaking to people, or they'll choose not to use that and, and use. Well, I've, I've heard in the industry is, uh, you know, OPM, other people's money, uh, either or it's, um, whatever works for you, really. OK, so I know that if you are borrowing money off friends and family, then that is at a different level than borrowing money from people you don't know, because then you have to kind of do some kind of financial uh, FC. I don't know what the term is. What is it? F financial? Yeah, some FCA stuff that That's you might it. need to do. If you're borrowing off a high net worth individual, um, I'll be honest with you, my business partner Aaron knows a bit more about that than I do. So I'm not, I won't be able to go fully into those those details because it's I've got a limited understanding. Um, Aaron deals with most of that. But yeah, th- those are things that can be done. Um, I mean, you might have family members that are high net worth individuals anyway. So the principle may or may not be, may or may not be the same. Uh, at the end of the day, if you are if you're seeking Angel finance or joint, you know, joint venture finance. Well, actually, let's divide it up. Let's go with let's talk angel finance first. So people that might plop into you know buy to let deal or, or whatever it might be. If that does come from friends and family, then I guess the principle is make sure your paperwork's good. Make sure that the investor is is happy with all of that. Do any extra paperwork that needs to be done if it needs to be done. Um, and yeah, so it's all about it's all about the level of the agreement. You know, and, and the understanding and the communication between both parties. When you're talking about the paperwork, are you talking about the kind of the writing down of the loan agreement? Yeah, absolutely. Loan agreements, uh, you know, some people may or may not want to go through uh, solicitors. I'm uh, speaking to a solicitor on the podcast uh, a little while ago. And, yeah, of course, the recommendation is, you know, the, the, the more paperwork, the merrier as such. But you, know, you can create a basic agreement 
on an email. And again, I'm assuming he knows what he's talking about because he's been in the practice for 30 plus years. So you can do it like that, but the more formal it is, the better. At the end of the day, if you're looking to take on you know, angel finance, we have to remember that we're running a business and we should have our business hat on at all times and, tr- and treat it as such. Okay, so can you take us through a case study of a loan that you've taken out with a with an angel investor or a private private finance, something that you've done? Yeah, absolutely. So this is something we've done a couple of times and that would be to, yeah, you might have some times where you need to buy property cash. So it's in a dilapidated state, it, someone needs a quick sale, all of that sort of stuff. And as they say, cash is kicked. If you've got cash, you're going to be in a position to act quickly. So sometimes you might need to, and yeah, people will look at you know, bridging finance and all that sort of stuff. Perfectly possible. It's about who you know, it's about what you know, it's about the numbers of the deal. But if you've got a family member, friend or, or someone that has cash uh, available, then it might be worth using them as well. Uh, we had uh, an example, and we've done this a couple of times, where we had a property. Um, it, it, it was just about mortgageable, but we decided, you know, we've been speaking to an investor. There was uh, some finance there on the table. We sat down with the investor. Uh, it's someone that we'd known for a little while as well. So this, this wasn't just a case of out of the blue, sit down, have an espresso and walk away with, you know, 50, 60 grand. It wasn't, you know, there's a lot of behind the scenes work beforehand. A deal came up, uh, numbers numbers were right. We sat down with, with the investor, uh, obviously you have your meets and greets, went through, this is this is the deal, this is the property, this is what we're looking to do, this is what we're looking to achieve. Of course, you always get the question, well, how, how you know, how am I going to get paid back? Well, this is, this is how the process is, this is what should happen. And yeah, from there, uh, t- took the investor finance on, purchased the property in cash, and then follow you know, that B, BRR model, you know, buy, refurb, uh, remortgage, as, as I call it. Obviously, it's different variations. And so we done that. And uh, yeah, the investor ended up getting their, um, their their cash back and they were happy. And uh, again, that, that's quite a common thing that we would do, Aaron. Right. So can I go through that in more detail? So let's just, I mean, you can invent yeah. vent the number, if you like. Say, how much was the property yeah. worth? I mean, how much did you pay for the property? Not how much was it worth? Oh, good question. Uh, from memory, it was it was on the nose at fifty thousand. So let's say so you 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 didn't have fifty thousand, so you borrowed fifty thousand from the investor, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So and then what happened? Then you did a refurb on it. Yeah, did a refurb on it. So the refurb the refurb monies in this case that actually came from our account. We had some aside for a refurb, so that's where that came from. To be clear. <sighs> You're probably going to ask me how much that was <laughs> from memory. I want to say it's somewhere between 10 and 15. Well, okay. Um, we, so, so let's say it's 15. Yeah. Okay. So then you've got your 15,000 yeah. on refurb. And before you've yeah. done all that, you've, you've assessed how much you think it'll be worth post refurb. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, if, if an investor's asking how they're getting their funds back, you know, you need to know how you're going to do that. If you're doing a BRR model, then you're going to be looking at you're going to be looking, well, you're going to have to do your homework beforehand. You know, you're going to have to know the numbers. You're going to have to have done your due diligence. There is no point at all. Uh, there's no point at all sort of being blasé with those numbers. You know, you're going to need to prove that you've done your homework. Of course, ultimately, at the end of the day, you can do as much homework as possible. Uh, but if the valuer has a bad day, you know, uh, you can do whatever we want. We're at the hands of people. 
at the end of the day. And that's happened one or two times. You know, something's not gone quite to plan because, uh, you know, Valuer um, might have had a bad, bad morning. Uh, anything can happen. So, yeah, uh, let's say for argument's sake, correct. Let's just say 50,000 purchase. Let's just say 15,000 for, let's call that refurb, stamp duty and, and legal fees. Okay. All, you know, all, 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 all inclusive. In, as they say, yes. All in so at all 65, in at 65 right. So yeah. then, so what was what was the figure that you had down as its uh, GDV? So we had it down that it should it should be worth eighty eighty thousand, and this was a fair few years ago. Yeah, that's what it should be worth. Okay, and I believe the valuation came back at eighty two. Okay, all right. So happy days, as you would say, Rob. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so then, where, at what stage do you pay back the investor? His fifteen or her fifteen thousand after refinance. So buy the property, do the works, give it. Well, in our case, we know we like to give it a bit of time. So you know, there's this six month rule, but it depends how much work you've done. You can do it quick, you know, all that sort of stuff. So um, we, yeah, we, we instructed our broker to find the most suitable mortgage company. So that's what he done, and value went out, valued at eighty two thousand pounds. Then it goes to the usual process you know, with legals, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then the mortgage went against the property. And then the 61,500 I've got here at 75% loan to value of 82,000. Yep, spot on. Thank you. But you know, you, you know numbers better than I do. No, I put uh, 61,500. <laughs> <laughs> no, Fair enough. I didn't do that in my head. One of us was going to put a calculator <laughs> up. Uh, yeah, so uh, that, you know, that minus illegal fees and whatnot uh, so we had a, a big chunk of change as we say um hit the account uh, investor got paid back and um happy days yes there's about maybe 10 11 000 left in the deal for us that, that's fine because ultimately we put in the reef uh refurbished monies ourselves and we don't mind as a company we don't mind leaving a bit of cash in the deal we don't mind because of our long-term strategies about the cash flow the more property you've got, the better your cash flow is. You know, so, it makes it e- easier. So yeah. So if you deduct that fifteen thousand pounds, no, we that, that's wrong, isn't it? You're not deducting that. So you're paying back your investor fifty thousand plus interest, which is about six, seven percent, whatever it was at the time. Right. So let's say that's about fifty-two, fifty-three thousand, right? Let's call it fifty-three for argument's sake. Yeah. Yeah. So fifty-three thousand. So sixty-one thousand five hundred minus fifty-three thousand. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Let me do that. Sixty-one thousand five hundred minus fifty-three thousand. Fifty-three thousand. I should be able to do that. Eight thousand five hundred. Let's let's see. Let's see if you're right. Eight thousand five hundred on the nose. Yeah. So that means how much money have you left in then? So if we say we're all in at sixty-five, we're all in at sixty-five thousand uh we got sixty one thousand five hundred back uh probably that means we're probably if my math is correct in for about three and a half thousand four thousand pounds give or take right okay so again not not bad and we can that was fine for us because ultimately what we were doing we were taking on the investor finance in that particular deal to to just purchase property you know the refurb stuff etc that was you know we had that in the account so we used our own our own cash there so yeah there's three and a half four thousand pounds give or take left in and you know that's 
that's fine for us. The important thing is the investors pay back, investors happy, job done. Now, we were talking recently about the state of the market and you were talking about macroeconomics and how Mm -hmm. maybe BRR might be a little bit dangerous in the current climate. Because if you do that and then maybe uh, market, you know, or as you say, not even that the valuer has a bad day, but but the valuer is under pressure from the lender to Mm -hmm. be very conservative with his valuation or her valuation. So there is a danger of doing BRR in that sense, right? Could you tell us about that? Yes, this is a this is caveat in talk effectively because, as we've said before, you need to you need to understand what's going on macro in a macro sense. I mean, you need to. There's no put your finger up to the wind and think about it. You need to know what's going on when you get all these different sanctions about, you know, oh, we're going to stop, you know, we're going to ban Russian gold from coming into the country and all that nonsense, which, by the way, is absolute nonsense. But that's a whole different story. And that's important because, you know, there's been a lot of stuff going on that's had an effect. But in a nutshell, what's happened is that the what we've done since 2019 is, yeah, a lot of, you know, epidemics, pandemics, whatever you want to call it, that's happened. But we've ended up, or the Bank of England ended up printing a lot of currency. And as a result of that, what they've done as what has happened time and time again throughout history, that slightly, I don't know what the percentage of that, that would have devalued the pound because what you're doing is basically giving a bunch of cash to people, um, uh, but you're not increasing the amounts of you know products and services available. So you've got more currency chasing around the same amount of goods and services. Any three-year-old can tell you that that's going to increase the prices. So yeah, we do have you know inflation, Per se, but also look at it from the other angle of actually our, our, our pound it is going down in value. It's not helped by a very unorthodox strong dollar at the time of recording. But again, hey ho, all of that leads us to a point where there should inevitably at some point there should be a, a correction. Now, I said at the end of 2021, start of 2022, that they would be it would fall off a cliff. I still stand by that because it will happen at some point. Point being, there will probably be a correction. So if you're going in with BRR. If you are going in and you're looking at refinancing next year or 2024, to me, that's a bit dangerous, depending on how much you bought the property for in the first place. Because if, a, if things do fall off a cliff, you know, lending can dry up uh, and values will more than likely be lower than, than where they currently are. So that's the thing to be cautious of. If you're in the process of refinancing like now and you can fix in your mortgage for a long period of time, then it's fine. And I, I say it's fine because if your mortgage is fixed in at, let's say, 3.5% for 10 years, argument, yeah, 10 years is a long time. You know, again, if you're doing it for cash flow and the numbers work, you know, why not? Uh, that's my opinion. Again, it depends on, you know, depends on where you're starting, what you're doing, what the deal's like, what's the area like, what's going on. But fundamentally, you need to have an idea roughly of what's happening macro-wise. Um, it helps you plan a little bit better than if you had no idea what was going on. You're saying that if you buy with cash, you still have to wait six months before you can get a mortgage on that property? No, not necessarily. It depends on the amount of work that needs doing. Uh, it depends on the state of the property. I always say in that case, you know, always speak to your broker first. Always speak to your broker because if they can uh, you know, figure out like a hybrid property uh, product of some sort or uh, a bridging product or anything like that now they might be able to advise otherwise i do know people that have purchased dilapidated property 
they've renovated it and because they've added significant value and they can prove they've added significant value albeit you know new kitchen bathroom or whatever it might be they've been able to get it done a lot quicker but the general rule of thumb is you should wait six months but on that always speak to your broker that's why we have mortgage brokers okay so uh what was i going to ask i was going to ask about the term that you put in place for the length of the loan from your private investor every every investor is different so some people will you've got to find out what's important to your investor so for some investors it's security and if it's security they're going to want maybe a charge on the property that's not an issue that's fine i would say probably ideal not to make it the same property the reason i say that is that we we have found over the years of doing it that if, if you try and refinance a property and it's got a, a first charge from you know john doe from down the road that can create more questions than necessary so it's again it's about speaking with your broker being flexible where you can and having confidence in the numbers and in the deals um, some investors might not want that uh, the example that uh, i spoke for earlier on the investor wasn't fussed uh, they weren't bothered by that they weren't bothered by having a charge of any sort they had the trust and faith in having and myself they were happy with the numbers that w- was presented they you know they this person had known us for a little while beforehand so there is that trust there so they they were just happy with a generic loan note agreement and and that was it and obviously it's worked out for that investor which is good but every investor is different john so sit down have a chat with them what's important to them and and try and be as, as flexible as you can and ultimately create that win-win situation well let's go back to that particular case study so did you say okay we'll pay you back when when the mortgage comes through or did you say okay this is a fixed six month uh, loan and if it goes if it goes into seven months then there's an, there's an arrangement if that happens and each different scenario is is allowed for how how did you in that particular case what happened so what we done we organized the paperwork for a year and we always say we always do it for a year and the reason we do that for a year is because let's just say you end up buying on january the first i know that doesn't really happen because it's of, of the day it is but let's just say january the first for argument's sake so let's just say we buy on January the 1st and, you know, we do a little bit of work to the property, but not not enough to warrant, you know, we're not, let's just say with a lick of paint, some new carpet, the, the generic bread and butter sort of stuff. So if we adapt the six month rule, we're not even allowed to start the refinance process until the 1st of July. And anyone that's had the pleasure of dealing with mortgage companies and their long list of uh, things uh, it knows that even with the best amount of planning that you can have, um, it doesn't always work out uh, like that. There's always more questions. Uh, they take time. Um, you know, all, all of the general BS that you have to deal with. So that, you know, that could easily take a couple of months. We always allow three months for that, just in case. You know, solicitor might come back with a couple of inquiries. The lender might be slow. So at minimum, bare minimum, we would go for nine months. But Aaron, see, he's a bit of a cost-benefit uh, ratio and analysis man, said, well, let's go with 12 months. Let's make it flexible. That way, we've got the flexibility our end that if the project lasts for nine months, we can pay the investor back. It's absolutely fine because most things should be done within a year. Barring something ridiculous happening, most of it should be done within a year. So that's how we do it. We, we allow a 12-month window, make sure the investor's happy with that. And we always say, you know, look, in the event that we can pay you back earlier, we will. Um, happy days. So if, if it lasts for nine months, if, if you get everything sorted within nine months... You don't have to pay those three months extra. 
No, you don't have to. It depends on what T's and C's you agree. Uh, we've had it a couple of times where we we have paid back the investor in full, in with a full interest as a gesture of goodwill, because you know, why not? If people get paid back like that, they might be more enticed to give you a bit more cash. So sometimes we've done that, sometimes we haven't, and we've stuck to the paperwork. Depends on the investor as well. And it, it yeah, it's just dealing with people at the end of the day, uh, getting that feel for how people like to operate. Have you taken out bridging loans? No, we have never, never in our time dealt with it. Uh, we've tried uh, some stuff we were trialing with back, back in the early days, 2016, 2017. But we found that this, and it wasn't because it was, you know, expensive or anything like that. We found it, it gets brandish, in my opinion, as, well, you know, it's quick, it's easy finance. Actually, when you get into it, it's an absolute pain in the ass, in my opinion. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm sure, you know, there's many people out there that have that have had great experiences dealing with bridging companies and bridging loans and building those relationships. We just haven't, we in our six or so years of doing this, we, we just haven't been able to forge those relationships but then again, you know, when we buy, we're buying such discount that we don't really need a bridging loan because we've always got funds sloshing around somewhere. So I'm not able to answer any bridging questions properly. And I'm not bashing the industry because many people use it. The products are great, et cetera. But we've always found it a bit a bit slower than, than it's advertised as. No, I mean, that's why I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask how you found the difference between bridging and uh private finance and why you prefer private finance or well I didn't know what you were going to say maybe you prefer bridging or maybe you like both but yeah so the advantages of uh, private finance are it's it is cheaper right or sh- could be should be depending it's, on the, depending on the, on, event, on the investor yeah. yeah and yep. it's uh less clunky to organize yeah absolutely because if you are at the end of the day if you are seeking if you're seeking if you're seeking cash from an investor and you know if they're able or might be able to do the whole amount, let's just say it's a purchase price and, and refurb for argument's sake, that's one set of paperwork to deal with. That is a lot easier. It should be a lot easier than dealing with a set of paperwork with an investor and then also having to deal with a bridging company on top of that because a bridging company, you know, oh, we want to charge here, charge here, security this, security that. Again, fine. It's about it's about that balancing act. Uh, so I'm not able to answer the question in terms of what do I prefer, uh, yeah. prefer properly because I've never properly done bridging. But I would say from the experience that I've had or we've had previously, we found that it's always a lot more than meets the eye with bridging. I would rather deal with a, per- a one-on-one with an investor uh, than they can make an educated decision uh, about that. Uh, the other blend, again, we've done before, we're happy doing is if the investor is going to pay to purchase a property as such, and then we, you know, we're financing the refurb, then that, you know, that's fine. That always works. Um, we find that works for us as well. So you have not put the in. You've not given a first charge to an investor ever, or just not not in that particular deal we talked about. Not on that particular deal that we we've spoken about. We have done it. We have done it before. So how does that work? Uh, it's just a bit of extra paperwork with solicitors, a couple of AML checks, so anti-money laundering checks as well. Uh, again, it's the time that we've done that, we've been very straight with the investor and the uh, solicitor as well. So you know, we purchase a property, we use investor finance. Um, you know, we've gone to the solicitor and said, "Look, here's, 
this is where the source of funds are coming from. Here's the investor. This is what's this is what's going on. Of course, the solicitor would deal with the investor as well to get all the documentation that they need. And we'd like a first or you know, a first charge needs to be registered with a land registry, so the solicitor can deal with that. What's the name it's of the that form thing. again, Rob? It's called a TRX. It should be an RX. RX. Should be an RX one. RX one, yeah. I believe it should be an RX one. Yeah. Uh, and then when it comes to take that first charge off, again, you have got to make sure your paperwork's good. We've never had this happen before, but I'm sure someone's had this happen before where they've taken investor finance on. Investors got a first charge on on said deal, and then, and again, I'm going to guess this has happened to someone. Then the investor's not taken off the first charge. Why? Now, well, again, I don't know. I'm, I'm hypothesizing here that I imagine that that's happened to someone at some point where they've taken in investor finance or maybe they've had a falling out or bad relations and then the investor's not taken the first charge off. I don't know. It's never happened to us because we always say when the time is right, um, you know, you agree to do an RX4, which is to take the first charge off. And once that paperwork's signed, you know, it's job done. So we've always covered our backsides by having that clause in said contracts. But yeah, I'm hypothesizing there because I can imagine that's happened to someone somewhere where they've taken investor finance on, that investor's got a first charge, they've fallen out with the investor and the investor's not rescinding the first charge. Uh, if you get into that situation, that's a bit challenging. But, but we, we've never been in that situation. We probably never will be in that situation. But um, it's all about the paperwork. Would you Fingers say crossed. it's fair? Would you agree to say that... Sorry, would you say it's i can't i can't speak is it fair to assume that when yeah. you uh when when your investor wants to take out a first charge then yeah. then you get the agreement uh, drawn up by a solicitor but if it's just a straight off loan that's when you tend not to use a solicitor and you just draw up the agreement between you and in your case between you and your investor yeah yeah, absolutely. So we, we've done both routes. Uh, so if it's close, if it's family, friends, we there's been there are you know we will predominantly go down the loan note agreement route. It's fine. People know that they're you know what they're lending for, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's not normally an issue there. If we're dealing with someone third party as such or through a contact, then you know that will go through that will go through proper legals as we say, um, because that rapport might be there, but not as a well-established rapport as, you know, your mate from around the corner as such. There's, you know, there's a difference in approach, there's a difference in attitude there. So we have them both both routes. So your investors, do you have repeat investors? They, they at the end of the end of the agreement, they say, oh, I'd like to do all this again. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Absolutely. We've had people that just have parted with their cash, given it to us, and we just tick it over and use it for whatever purposes we need. Um, so we've had a couple of people like that which is really nice it helps to establish it helps to create even stronger relationships uh, we found over the years which is is very useful and we have had it before where you know we've handed back x amount to an investor and you know they say oh thanks for that um, by the way i've got a little bit more do you want to do something with it and you know those situations do happen but you know, ultimately you've got to you know have that trust with the investors and, and vice versa and when you do you find an investor first line it all up then go looking for a deal or do you find a deal and then look for your investor well that that is the chicken and egg question yeah. isn't it uh we we always prefer to have the cash lined up first and um, that's what that's what we that's what we like to do 
doesn't always work like that. There have been a couple of times where the deals come to us and we've had to sort of scramble around for, for said finance. Um, sometimes that's worked, sometimes that hasn't worked. So we always prefer to have the, the capital lined up first um, and then, then go hunting. And then go hunting for the deal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, you know, we use, we use sourcing agents. We have good relationships with a few people. And again, it's, it's trust. You know, you do a couple of deals, you build up that trust, they know what you're after and vice versa. So that's how we would do it. You know, that's how we would like to do it. Add the capital first, go and find a deal and crack on with the deal. And at the moment, I think you told me before that you're keeping your powder dry at the moment. Is that right? Yeah, yes and no. So if we're talking generic uh, single letter family units, BRR, uh, we're predominantly keeping the powder dry. Again, there's always opportunity. I will caveat but what I'm just about to say, there's always opportunity out there. So yeah, even with macro, don't be put off by it. it. It will create opportunities. And that is when you can get seriously, you know, rich and wealthy in not just property in a number of things. Um, that's it. Buffett says be fearful and others are greedy and greedy and others are fearful. In terms of generic BRR, uh, yeah, we're, the power is dry at the moment, not a lot going on. If a deal were to come through and it meets all the requirements, et cetera, game on, we're, we're, we will crack on, not not a problem if if the buying price is right. Uh, but we're looking at a couple of bigger bigger projects at the moment. Uh, that's really all I can say about about them. Uh, we're early stages of doing DD uh, due diligence on them. And again, it's um, uh, my understanding is the the vendors in uh, a bit of financial disarray and they need to get get shot of of said assets. Um, so again, you know, all we could do is turn up, look at the numbers, do the homework, and if there's if the purchase price is right, and we can figure out a way to get in and out of the deal as quickly as possible, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and do that. And that, funny enough, is, is a joint venture partnership deal. Um, potentially, uh, there's going to be a few of us teaming up on that. So that's not just Aaron and myself. Um, so that, that's where we're at at the moment. So we're always, you know, always got our eyes open because you never know what's going to fall in your lap. So I, you probably can't, you know, tell me if you can't talk about it because it's a proposed deal, but you yep. are, is that like a joint equity deal then? Yeah. So at, at, at the time of recording and as things stand, uh, what it is, is again, the vendor's in a bit of financial disarray. Uh, we are potentially able to uh, step in and help. So there's a two, effectively two businesses involved, uh, myself and Aaron and a couple of people uh, that Aaron, uh, that we know, um, that we've built relationships up with over over the last year or so. We both looked at the deal. Um, the potential JV partners proposed that we join venture with them purely because through Aaron's contacts, there is probably someone available to fund the deal straight away. So again, we, we will be able to come in from a position of, of cash through an investor as well. So that'll be useful. Uh, the deal, in effect, cash flows already. It's it's mostly occupied. There's a bit of work to be done in certain areas of it. And the, the numbers, again, at the time of recording, the numbers make sense. So that's the position we're in. And, that, you know, we'll, that's how we'll work together in terms of like joint equity and stuff like that. To my understanding, everything, you know, everything would be 50-50 split down the middle in terms of, uh, you know, cash flows and, you know, on the hook for things if things go badly. And, you know, with these joint venture partners, it's a case of we need 
well, we want to do a project with them because we've all got different skill sets. And if that one project works, then that could lead potentially to more projects with the same people. And then you know, that, that's uh, what I like to call happy days. Okay, yeah, you've just answered my question. My question was going to be, so if you have access to cash, why do you need these people anyway? Yeah, very, very good question. So they're the ones that actually found a deal and bought it to us and, and spoke to us. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, Aaron deals with a lot of that, to be honest. So again, it's not for me to comment because um, I don't deal with what Aaron deals with on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but yeah, these potential joint venture partners, they are on the ground a lot more than we are. They have a complete different skill sets from Aaron and myself. So as a foursome, we you know we on paper we work quite well because we've all got different things that we do and we've all got the same ideology in the very long term is we understand it's you know their assets it's wealth creation these things take time Rome wasn't built in a day all that sort of stuff so we you know we've got the same end goal which is important that's key uh, and if they're on the ground running around um finding x y and z and through aaron and other people were able to fund and finance where we can through private investors and the numbers stack up and we've all got different contacts with like brokers and finance and all that sort of stuff, then, um, you know, why not? It's just about doing the due diligence, doing the analysis of deals. And at some point one will meet the criteria and, and you go from there. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that wraps it up. I think you just said that Rome wasn't built in a day. I wonder how long a remortgage of Rome would take. <laughs> Depends who's refinancing it. <laughs> Okay, so that's uh, that's that's all my questions answered. Anyway, no, perfect. I, at the end of the day, John, I think it's as long as you found it useful, um, it, you know, it, it's nothing to be afraid of. At the end of the day, if the deal, if the deal, they always say if the deal stacks up, the the cash will come. And yeah. I'm a firm believer in that as well. If the deal stacks up, the cash will come, and people will work with you because they like you. Yeah. So, I mean, this is off air now. I would need to go and look at that and try and still work it out in my head in terms of, you know, how much money you have and how much money you have to give back to them and stuff. I'll have to kind of put it on on paper and work it out. But uh, can I ask a question that I wanted to ask for that? Your episode is going to come out on Wednesday, by the way. Sorry, I should have told you. That's Uh, fine. But I I did think of a question that I didn't ask. Okay. and, And depending... Uh, but I don't know whether you want to talk about it or not, but you told me that you were an EPC assessor. Yes, correct. Yeah. Is that, are you happy with that to be in the public domain? No, oh, absolutely. Yeah. The okay. more EPCs I can do, the better. Okay. So short, uh, short sorry, <laughs> I've been editing Sean property accountant all <laughs> week. <laughs> so Rob, I understand that you, as a sideline, you are an EPC assessor. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, of course, John. So, uh, for those that may not know what an EPC is, it's an energy performance certificate. Uh, you, you need one, basically, if you're buying, renting, or, or selling. In I'm just going to say England because of devolution of power. I'm just going to say England for argument's sake. So you need one, basically. Um, they're valid for 10 years. Uh, they provide a very uh, generic overview of the energy efficiency of your home. There's a lot of lobbying going on behind the scenes about making them a bit more in-depth and, and bits and bobs like that. Of course, we've got a massive uh, uh, eco movement and whatnot happening. And I mean, it will probably happen for a very, very long time anyway. So, yeah, um, how did I get into that? Uh, uh, an old contact of mine um, talked me into doing it. Uh, I like going around property. I like going around homes. I, I like being nosy, to be honest, John. 
and to be able to pick up a new skill set and still be able to manage my own diary, create my own leads, that sort of stuff, uh, I found quite useful. And you never know what you might find. You might end up doing an energy performance certificate for a person that's in, um, you know, financial distress. They need to sell. Uh, that's not happened to me. I'll be honest. In the in the time of, uh, in the time of doing energy certificates, but you know, you never know. So it's just an extra income stream at the end of the day. Uh, and being qualified as a, a domestic energy assessor, as we say, a DEA, uh, has proven quite useful. Um, as I said, it's good to get out and about, help people where you can, and uh, pick up a new skill set. And it's one of those things. EPCs haven't always been around, but I don't know the percentage of homes that do or don't have them. But I mean, it's twenty-nine, roughly 29 million dwellings in England. So there's a lot to be done. Well, if this proposed legislation comes in, in I think it's 2025, I'm not sure, 2025, 2026, something like that, whereby uh, a dwelling has to have a rating of C or above to be let out, that's going to create huge opportunity in the market, I think. And it's going to be be as significant, I guess, as the whole Section 24 thing was, you know, back in 2016. So how do you see that panning out in terms of opportunities? And what is an easy fix? Because I guess some EPCs might be a D or an E. And actually, when you look into the certificate, some of those things can be corrected for quite a small amount of money. So where do you think the opportunities will be within that? How long have you got? (laughs) Maybe it's an episode on its own. Maybe we'll yeah, do that. Um, let's let's go back and do let's do that as another episode another time. I think I think that's a huge subject. Yeah. I'll um yeah, that's fine. What I'll give you an answer anyway because yeah. you've asked a question and and then we can book something in um yeah. in due course. That's fine. Um, there'll always be opportunity at the end of the day. There there will always be opportunity. There'll be opportunity for there'll be opportunity for buy. Uh, sorry, there will be opportunities to buy. There'll be opportunities to you know acquire portfolios maybe because. Uh, again, if you're if you're landlord, you might be starting to get fed up with all these regulations and and chopping and changing, and it forces people out of the game. Uh, so that's one thing that it might create. Um, I, I'm not going to put my eco hat on at the moment. I'm going to go and give you a more pragmatic answer. It, it's a ball ache, to be honest. Uh, the reason it's a ball ache is because most uh, again, I haven't got the the stats here, but from my travels and going around, most homes, most homes in the UK are going to be either Victorian, Edwardian, probably. So you're talking, you know, anything in the late 19th century to, you know, up to about 1910. You might have some very early, you know, George V style 1910s, 1920s. Basically, though, most of those, most of those properties are going to be solid brick. Now, solid brick's a bit different from cavity. So solid brick, you've literally got, well, funny enough, a solid brick. <laughs> That's your wall. A cavity, you're going to have, you know, a brick on the outside, uh, a gap pr- pretty much in the middle, and then a, well, of course, cinder block on on the inside. So you've effectively got that gap in the middle. That's a cavity wall. Uh, the challenge with solid wall is that if you're going to put external wall insulation on, um, that's a big investment that you've got to do. It depends on the size of your home. I'm not able to sit here and give you figures on that because it depends on the size of your home. Uh, obviously, if you've got an end terrace, that's going to be a lot more than doing a mid terrace because for various reasons. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a ball ache. Um, 
in order to get your EPC rating as high as possible, a couple of simple things you can look at, loft insulation. So if you have a loft, not every home's got a loft. If you've got a loft, plop the insulation up as much as you can. Uh, industry standard says about 270 at the moment, but you know, if you can get away with three, 350, 400, go and do it. Uh, it's relatively inexpensive to do. You can go down. What, what does that mean? 270, yeah. 350? What, what, what do you mean there? Oh, so, uh, 270 millimetres of loft insulation. So you can easily put up to 350, maybe even 400 millimetres of, of loft insulation. So you could do that. I mean, you can go down being cured by the stuff. You know, it's relatively straightforward uh, to do. Installing it's a different story. You might need a professional to do that unless you're happy up in your loft. So you've got that that you can do. Uh, glazing, uh, you know, double glazing is preferable. Uh, again, I appreciate that. And this is where the, we might need a whole episode on this because you're going to get conservation areas where you're not allowed double glazing or set. But improving the glazing is useful. Um, at the moment, gas boilers are still the best thing that you can have on an EPC rating at the time of recording. An up-to-date gas boiler, I believe it or not, um, you know, heat, heat source pumps and whatnot, uh, you, you won't get as good a rating because of the software and how the certificates are produced. This is one of the things they need to work on behind the scenes. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff to work on behind the scenes between the bigger companies and, and government, for example. It's okay saying from a voting point of view, oh, you know, it's got to be a C or, or whatever. Fine. But if you live in a converted mill that's been around for 200 years plus, uh, you can have as much secondary glazing as you want. You're, you're pretty much screwed because of the age of the building. The biggest determining factor on an EPC is the age of the building. And when you're dealing with a lot of buildings, that, again, are late 19th century, early 20th century and not a lot you can do about when a building was built so Once it's built, if it's you built. were looking for opportunities and you were say okay i'm going to go and look for buildings that have got like a, a, a d or an e or even an f yeah. or g and you're thinking okay yeah. which what should you be targeting the ones that just need a new boiler what what's going to be the cheapest way i i'd look at council house stock absolute go to your council estates why because they're built like bomb shelters anyway um as long as they're cavity wall uh, and again from a lending point of view i'm thinking pragmatically from a lending point of view you need them to be cavity wall you can get ones that are timber frame lenders don't like that or you can get ones where uh, built out of concrete that's what we call system build again that can create issues with lenders so from a property investment point of view i'll be looking at council estates they're built like bomb shelters they're cavity wall most of the time Cavity walls are a lot easier and cheaper to get to those sea levels and above. Absolutely. Um, if I'm looking at opportunity, yeah, the, the ways that you can improve energy efficiency, uh, loft insulation, you can do floor insulation. If you've got suspended timber floor, that's, that can be quite straightforward to do. Have an up-to-date heating system. And again, gas boilers are still the best things to do or to have uh, on, on, on the certificate software. Uh, Again, age of the building is the biggest determining factor. So if you're dealing with you know, an, an old, very old end of terrace property that hasn't got the best boiler in the world, yeah, it's quite a bit of an upgrade. If you're dealing with a 1960s, 1970s council house that's cavity, you know, chances are it might not always be in the greatest area in the world, but your demand's going to be strong because it is what it is. And, and cavity walls are a lot easier to fill uh, and it's a lot cheaper to fill as well and that can make a big difference to the rating so uh, a lot a lot going on in the background there john so i've been looking at a lot of epcs recently and a lot of them say things like you know poor walls or poor this or poor that what do you think is yeah. kind of if i'm looking at one 
and you would say, and wow, that's going to be really expensive. Don't bother with that. What's what do you think is that the walls? Um, it's it's difficult depending because depending on what the, you said, I mean, but depending on what kind of building it is, whether it's like a cavity wall, whether it's solid brick, what what's the kind of the, the biggest off-putting thing on an EPC? Going, wow, that's going to cost you a lot of money. Don't bother with that. External wall insulation right. is, is the biggest thing. And external wall insulation applies to solid brick properties. So uh, as we've just discussed with a cavity, if you fill in the cavity, obviously you are filling the cavity. It's quite literal. If you're doing solid wall insulation, it, it, it's what we call external wall insulation, EWI. That can cost an arm and a leg. It doesn't have to, but it can. And, that, and that's the issue. If you're saying to a property investor, uh, let's... Let's just say you've got a D rating and the only thing you could do is to put, um, let's just say you've got a mid-terrace solid brick property in Burnley, hypothetically, and you've got a D rating on your EPC. And the only thing the EPC says that you can do to improve that rating is to have solid wall insulation. That could easily cost seven, eight thousand pounds and up for a mid-terrace. If you're an investor, be honest with you, you've probably got better things to do with seven or eight thousand pounds than to improve your EPC rating up to a C. And therefore, that is the issue, because if you're then funding that, where's the cash coming from? We'll go back to macro, as we spoke about. So it's a bit, it's a, it, well, it's what I like to call typical UK. It's a bit of a rigmarole. It's a loads of bureaucracies, a lot of BS involved. Um, you know, ultimately, if we can keep homes warmer because of our climate and stuff like that, I'm all for that. That's absolutely fine. How you fund that it is a different story. If you're sat there with a property portfolio of, let's just say 10 mid-terrace properties in Burnley, and they've all got D ratings, and the only thing you can do is external wall insulation, you're then effectively saying to an investor, oh, yeah, by the way, you need to put 70, 80,000 pounds into your wall insulation so you can rent them out. Uh, I don't know a lot of people that would be willing to do that, to be yeah. honest. Um, and I mean, yeah. based on that, who knows whether they, they might backtrack on the whole thing anyway. That's why there's a lot of lobbying behind the scenes, to be fair, John. And, uh, but in answer to your question, this is why I would recommend looking at your cavity wall properly, uh, because there's, they're, they're, they're more cost effective to deal with in terms of the upgrades. And there's nothing wrong with solid brick. Most of our portfolio is solid brick. I'll hold my hands up. But actually, um, the thing that would, I would be concerned about is unless you can get loads of grants and whatnot off the local council, which, again, speak to your local council, because all the grants are always changing, uh, you know, I would say an N-terrace solid brick property, I'd, I'd be very concerned about because that's a big gable wall you've got to deal with yeah. to insulate it. Um, and that, that can cost a hell of a lot. That's a lot of investment there. Yeah, great. Okay, that's all.